Today, it's a story from my past. It's December 1990. I was 24, living in Wellington, fully occupied with conquering the world, as 24-year-olds are. I've been married for almost a year, and life was really good. My mum was coming down from Auckland to have Christmas with us, and I was really looking forward to having that time. She had been struggling for a few years with bipolar disorder. She'd had a psychotic break um, and had really been in the wars. It was very difficult for me as a young man to handle my mother seemingly becoming someone different from the person that I thought I knew. The dr drugs that they, she was on sort of um, weren't great in those days. They induced a sort of a state of comfortable numbness. They're a whole lot better now. However, she was getting into good space. The drug doses had been reduced. She was back working and life was going a lot better for her. I got home one evening and my uncle was on the phone to say that mum had had a brain hemorrhage and was in Auckland Hospital on life support. She'd been talking to him on the phone quite normally. She started slurring her words repeated them, then she dropped the phone, passed out. By the time Steph and I got to Auckland, the next day the only thing left for me to do was to consent to turning off the life support that was artificially sustaining her and agreeing to give her organs to good homes. It was hard to see her amidst, amidst that mass of tubes, from machine pumping air into her lungs, her whole body being lifted with each breath. It was a grotesque parody of life rather than real life. It was a shocking thing to see someone I loved and was close to in that state. Went back to her flat that night, broke down. Well, the next day, it was time to start thinking about her funeral. I made a couple of suggestions to the wider family and they seemed okay with them. But I was struggling with feeling very down. See, Mum had given me a hard time about becoming Christian, so I was struggling with the thought that there was no hope for her, that she was lost to God and would spend a conscious eternity in hell. Later that day, we met with the funeral celebrant and the storm broke. My suggestions, apparently, were putting the friends before the family and they showed really how little I truly loved her. Family insisted that the service would not have too much God stuff in it because that was your religion and she never wanted a bar of your God. I felt quite crushed, despairing. And that night I lay in bed unable to sleep, feeling like I had 50, 100 kilos on my back. It really was a physical sensation. I've never felt anything like it before or since. one of the lowest points of my life thus far. I was in a lot of pain. And when I think of how Jesus must have felt on the cross when he cried out to God in despair, that moment is one of the few reference points that I have. How I felt that night is the best I can do to how Jesus might have felt. And today I'm reading from Matthew 27. 
This is on Good Friday. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's much about what happened to you on your last day of life here on earth that we struggle to understand. But we pray that you will enlighten us further. Enlighten us so that our worship of you might be deeper and our love for you more mature. Amen. Wise Christians have been wrestling with this text for the last 1,800 years. So this morning we are in that most excellent of company. Begs one of the central questions of our faith. What happened on the cross? The outcome is not really in dispute. Sin was vanquished, forgiveness won. Sinful people like you and I, able to be reconciled with our creator God. Our sin being atoned for. But Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're quite jarring, aren't they? Did he really not know why he was there? How could he not know? Had God the Father truly forsaken him, abandoned him? The question is what happened on the cross. It's a huge and I think quite mysterious question, which I'm going to touch on today, and I'm freely admitted between now and 20 to 12, I won't resolve it. And I probably wouldn't resolve it if I was here for 25 years. And the more that I've studied and thought about this question, the less that I'm sure of the answer. And it does matter. It's not just some how many angels dance on the head of a pin type issue. By contrast with that, I think we can draw some very definite conclusions from the way that Jesus faced the pain and anguish of the cross. He's got a lot to teach us about grief, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Anyway, to the text. And my first observation is that Jesus was crying out to God. He wasn't crying out to Elijah. How galling it must have been for him to be so misunderstood. But that was a continuation of a theme all the way through his ministry. And if you think about the, the stories of the life of Jesus, the Pharisees, they saw him hanging out with sinners so thought he was a drunkard or a ne'er-do-well. They missed his compassion. The priests saw his contempt for their rules and their practices, so they thought he despised the holiness of God, missing his heart for worship and the simplicity of his faith. And his disciples, those closest to him, thought that the kingdom he was talking about would be this grand triumphant affair in which they would all be greatly honoured, missing his humility and his sacrifice. Everyone always misunderstood him. 
And now in his moment of deepest anguish, he cries out to God and his mocking persecutors think he's crying out to Elijah. It's the story of his life. How completely frustrating for him. Can you relate? That's the first observation. Second observation is that the darkness that Matthew describes here was not a natural thing or an eclipse. See, Passover is held at a full moon. So that precludes that possibility. I think it's safe to assume that the shadow was in some way an expression of how God the Father was feeling. He withheld light from the scene. But what exactly was he feeling? The possibilities occur to me are first that it's part of his anger against sin that he's visiting on Jesus on the cross. He just can't bear to look at him. This Jesus that he made sin disgusts him. Now on this sign, I thought the shadow is an expression of God's holiness and his utter abhorrence for sin. Now this view has informed a lot of church teaching and evangelism. Jesus not only suffers the physical pain of the cross and the abandonment of his followers and friends, he's abandoned by God the Father. And presumably God the Spirit too, as each are as holy as the other. So neither can embrace the sin that Jesus has become. I'll read you an outline, um, a note from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. This is the, the heavy hitter of evangelical theologians. As Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. So Jesus has to contend with the physical agony of the cross, the existential pain of being separated from the Father and the Son, but also this fury of God being dumped on him. God the Father doesn't just want him to die, he doesn't just leave him, he actively punishes him for all of our sins. The cross for Jesus was his own personal hell on that awful first Good Friday, bearing the sins of every person who has ever lived or will ever live. This was what the holiness, justice and anger of God required in order for us sinners to be forgiven. This was what the first people who discipled me in the faith taught me that God was too holy to have anything to do with a wretched sinner like me. He was profoundly angry with me. It required Jesus to accept this punishment on my behalf. And then when he looked at me, he would see me through Christ-coloured spectacles. God's justice required that sin be paid for before a true relationship with me could begin. Now, we don't talk about a lot of this stuff anymore. But the exemplar of this approach is the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which was preached by Jonathan Edwards a couple of hundred years ago. And here's a quote from it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He's of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. 
You are 10,000 times more abominable, abominable excuse me, in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. There's a picture of what he's representing there, and there's Jonathan. I see a few problems with this approach. And I wanted just to briefly mention a couple. The first is, God's supposed aversion to dealing with sinners like you and I is not reflected in much of the Old Testament. When Israel goes off the rails, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is like this fierce lover chasing after them, wanting to get them back. He's not holding his nose saying, oh, I don't want to go near you. And then you come to Jesus' life, and you think how Jesus treated such people as a woman caught in adultery. He's loving, he's engaging, engaging, and he keeps scandalous company by the standards of his day. Again, no nose-holding. Jesus is the Son of God, is just as holy as his Father, yet this holiness doesn't seem to stop him engaging with his creation. Likewise today, the Holy Spirit is active in the world, both within the church and without it. Sin doesn't seem to be holding him back too much. He breaks into sinful people's lives every day of the week and five times on Sundays. He broke into a mine when as a young man, family friend described me that I was a drunken rat bag. But here I am, your pastor. Another problem I have with this is it seems to separate the Trinity out. They're less than united. The Father is grumpy as all heck, holy, angry, and distant. Well, the Son, we like the Son. He's engaging and nice and compassionate. Yet at a fundamental level, they are on the same page. We know that they are united in love and compassion as well as holiness and righteous anger. It's like the Father doesn't really love us, he just loves Jesus, and we sneak in on the coattails. But as Jesus said in John 3, 16, that much-quoted um, text, God so loved the world. Think about that. That's a profound statement. It's a huge thing to say when you think about all of our darkness. He loves the teeming, smelly, grasping mess of us who exploit each other as a way of life, who brutalise each other and devil take the hindmost. And he loves these guys. Sorry, I've just skipped ahead. Where are they? Picture of three blokes in a row. Can you see it? Must have gone too fast. Those guys. He loves the mosque shooter. He loves Vladimir Putin. And he loves that guy in the centre who's the Christchurch businessman who's just been convicted of raping a child and blames her for it. I don't love these people. At all. But he does. It's utterly unbiblical 
to have a nice, forgiving son of God, but an angry, judgmental God the Father. John is very, Jesus is very clear in John's gospel. He and the Father are one. As he told Philip in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is no other God standing behind Jesus that's different. Well, the second possibility of what this shadow is, it fell across the land, is perhaps it's primarily an expression of God's pain. And what was happening to his beloved son, with whom, as he said earlier, he was well pleased. He and the Spirit were there with Jesus in his agony, but they didn't stop it because all three knew that great good would come from the forgiveness of sins and the ultimate reconciliation of all things to God that would be accomplished on the cross. Now, in this understanding, Jesus hasn't truly been forsaken. So why would he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Excellent question, I think. The answer may be that when we are in great physical, emotional pain, say when someone close to us has died, we oscillate between acceptance and rejection of what has happened. We do this funny dance with despair. It can totally feel like God is not there, even if intellectually we know he will never leave us and has never left us. To be human, I think, is not to be entirely rational. Reason is an important part of us. Don't hear me saying otherwise. But it doesn't utterly define us. And if you think that's just pop psychology, then look at these quotes from Job, the great Old Testament wisdom book of when bad things happen to good people. So Job's just lost his entire family. And he opens his mouth and he curses the day of his birth. His family and his livelihood have been wiped out. Quite naturally, he's a little down. Then a bit further in John 10. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me, what charges have you got against me? He's wondering who to blame. And has he done anything wrong? Has God falsely charged him in punishment? He's angry. Then a bit further on again. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my way to his face. He's swinging. Whatever has happened, God is good and he will hope in him. There is a future and there is a hope. And then later still, I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. He's swung back again to his doubts about God, and he's flirting again with despair. Now, Jesus was the divine Son of God, come to earth, but he's also fully human down to his toenails. He's got a human nature, much like yours or mine. And as such, he's got to wrestle with grief and loss, as we all do. And we see this most clearly in that other jarring scripture, which records his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. Faced with the enormity of what he knew was going to happen to him, he's scared and he's anxious. Well, who wouldn't be? 
but he pressed on in obedience to the Father, knowing again that great good would come from that sacrifice. Jesus knew why he was on the cross. He knew why he was in this place. I skimmed through Matthew's Gospel that today's opening passage comes from, and I found 12 occasions where Jesus predicted his death, many of them as specific as death on a cross. They're everywhere. Whichever understanding of the cross is closest to the truth, it's clear that Jesus knew why he was there. He wasn't truly confused. Whatever being forsaken by God might have meant exactly, he knew why it was happening. A wash in physical pain, emotional agony, and if Grudem and friends are right, the blasts of a furious father God, he cries out, my God. The enormity of it all was overwhelming. He was losing so much. That phrase, my God, has a real sense of intimacy and connection in it. Specialness, and it's lost. Like me the day after my mum died, or like Job, he's struggling to see God, he's struggling to reach out, and all that is going on, and all that is filling his head and his heart. Interestingly to me, he doesn't cry out for his ordeal to end. His cries are yearning for comfort and lost connection. It echoes all of our experiences of walking through the gloomy places of life and not being able to see God in any of it. Now, a number of scholars have pointed out that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is the opening line of Psalm 22. Did you know that? Yeah. And they have seized on this and they've exegeted the rest of Psalm 22, which, like most Psalms of lament, ends with a strong expression of hope. So they imagine here that Jesus is expressing hope because he's connecting to Psalm 22. I cannot imagine, though, a person at the end of their physical and emotional endurance being quite so clever or quite so cryptic is to leave a little crumb trail to that psalm. Jesus' cry reminds me of the dementia patients at the rest home when I was a student chaplain. They couldn't hold a conversation. They had little short-term memory. They couldn't communicate meaningfully. But when we started the Anglican liturgy, it was all there, the responses. And when we sang Amazing Grace, they could sing it. They'd absorb those words as children, so they were deeply ingrained. And I imagine Jesus as a little Jewish boy learning Psalm 22 on his mother or father's knee. And under real pressure, the memory of the psalmist's great anguish came to mind. For me, this is the cry of a broken heart. Now there are many things that we could draw from this, but I want to focus on one. That is, as Paul Askin preached here so eloquently last week, if it's okay for Jesus to grieve, it's also okay for me and for you to grieve. When we're in denial, struggling to absorb the realities of what is happening or is hap has happened or is happening, that is okay. When we are angry, that is okay. When we are depressed and overwhelmed, that is okay. Because as Paul said, grieving our losses is a normal part of a well-adjusted life. My reaction to the crisis at my mum's death 
calls for me was entirely normal and okay. I think we need to learn to lament our losses. But it's not a place we stay in forever. Three days later, Jesus' crisis had passed when by the Spirit the Father raised him from the dead in triumph. Likewise for me, later in the evening after Mum died, my mind began to wander back to when I was in my early teens, struggling with this whole God thing and bitterly resenting being at a church school. At that point in my life, it was Mum trying to point me to his reality. She talked about her own experience of losing my dad and how something or someone had got her through that. At that instant, for me, hope was born. And the interesting thing about hope and despair is a tiny amount of hope can blast a lot of despair straight away. I was able to celebrate her life at the two funeral services in different cities that we ended up having and was able to deal graciously with my angry relatives. I came to understand that their anger wasn't about me. It was displaced grief. It was their grief. I'm not saying that pain always passes that quickly because it sure as heck doesn't. But it does pass. There's always hope, even if you can't see it in the moment you're in. Now last week I, after Paul spoke, I suggested that there were perhaps people here who had conversations they needed to have. Pain and loss and grief that needed processing. And I've talked to one or two. And I just put out that comment again. If you have a something that needs unwinding, do it. If you don't have anyone in your life that's a good listener, come have a chat to me. Be happy to help your process. Thank you for your kind attendance. We're going to close with our final song.